Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Retro Markey. And my name's Dan. Hello there, Dan. Hello, how are you, chap? I'm not too bad. Well, actually, I've been a bit sick, but I won't waffle on about it. This okay. is a podcast about uh, technology, computer games, and video games, so I think we should get straight into it. However, we do have a slight apology, do we not? We do, we do. We did say that we were going to be talking about the Connex Multisystem uh, this week. However, we're not. We're not. And, and <laughs> the reason being, interestingly, the Connex Multisystem, there's a wealth of information behind this. It's quite a, an interesting story. We've decided we're probably going to break that up into a a couple of podcasts worth of uh, discussion. It needs, yeah. I mean, the Connex is is too big, too significant for us to rush it, and we want to do it really well, don't we? Okie dokie. So what are today's two main topics? The first topic of conversation this week is Atari coin-ops. We want to discuss the experience of going to the arcade and and some of the fantastic inventions that Atari came out with. Uh, Yeah, and kind of compare and contrast with the other coin-ops of the time. Because for me, there's this... I have this memory even to this day of how different the Atari coin-ops were contrasted to the other coin-ops, which are mostly Japanese, mm-hmm. Namco, Sega, etc. And there's a definite flavour to the Atari ones that I think would be interesting to talk about. There's, a, there's some uniqueness there that we want to explore. I agree. The other subject we want to talk about today, horror games. Yes, fantastic. I've been playing quite a lot of horror games recently, and I've played them on and off. Mm-hmm since uh, we started playing games, I guess. And the same with you, no? They sort of come and go. So we want to explore that, different formats, different platforms, and what we manage to get out of them horror-wise each and every time. Yeah, and absolutely. There's an evolution, isn't there, in horror games that's probably a little bit more significant than in other genres of games. Yes, because we think it's tied to the capabilities of the hardware, Yeah. Um, in summary. But We'll explore that as we go through it. It's coin-ops, really, we want to kick off. With yeah. Those, isn't it? yeah, the arcades. I mean, I could talk forever about the arcades. Just to put it in context for maybe any younger listeners, an arcade was a huge, pretty smoky, seedy, dirty... Definitely seedy. Yeah, seedy kind of place, full of... I mean, one thing people forget, you can emulate uh, an arcade game pretty much perfectly these days. But the thing about the coin-ops were... You had the unique controllers, the unique environment and atmosphere of all these different machines with their bells and whistles and trying to attract your attention, trying to get you to put the money in. They had an attract mode, didn't they? Each and every game would try and lure people in to spend their money and shove coins into a coin slot. Yeah, so basically an arcade was so unique in that there was just music and sound everywhere and people, and as you said, it was a little bit seedy at times, but absolutely brilliant fun. I wouldn't change it for the world. But um, to be more specific, we wanted to really sort of highlight that kind of uh, mid to late 80s when we were playing a lot of Atari coin-ops and also the other ones and how they sort of varied in our memories and any anecdotes you might have. Actually, getting into the arcade was was a big deal especially when you weren't 16. So you, yeah. had, you had to be 16 to get into the arcade. And there and was a both, sorry to interrupt. Both of us don't didn't exactly... We weren't mature 14-year-olds who looked like 16. I didn't we have were. a beard at that time, no. <laughs> so, so to get in, there was a trick. When you were about 15 and a half, you got a national insurance number card. I don't That's know if you right. remember this. And so when you went to the arcade and they said, you're not 16... You'd say, I've got an NI card. And then they'd whip it off you and say, well, what's the number? And you'd read back the NI number as if somehow that meant you knew something about the card. And you'd borrow somebody else's in the event that you didn't have one. And, of course, we had Andy P, the famous Andy P we mentioned last time, who did look older than us. Yeah. 
and uh, he would go up to the because uh, there was a booth, wasn't there, where you'd go to get your change. You need your That's ten right, piece, yeah. and we'd get him to go up there, and we'd sort of sneak in around the side or something. <laughs> Normally, get away with it. I'll tell you another thing, actually, that um, is quite interesting. We used to have a thing called a tapper, which was a little electronic sort of mechanical device. We'd go into the coin slot and give free credits. Really? We used to get thrown out a lot for that, yeah. I, I never had one of those. What was yeah. it, you, you and Mr. P? Uh, and a guy called Moggy, Morris. Moggy. Ah, right. I okay. think he was actually the mastermind. He was quite an intelligent guy. And, yeah, we, we got caught once or twice and kicked out. But also the coin-up companies, I think, I mean, it wasn't just us. It was quite a famous thing to do, and the coin-up companies did find ways of um, improving their tech. Yeah. So that we couldn't, uh, so it wasn't, I mean, in the old, I think in the 70s, you can get a coin on a piece of string and do it, so. Yeah. Well, interesting, though, that the, the cost of a game, mm -hmm. you know, it started off at about 10p, but quickly rose over a number of years as the technology got more advanced and the experience became a bit more immersive. So 50p a game was a big hurdle. It was. And it was always like, so for example, if, if the majority of games were 20p, the 50p one would be, the amazing, awesome new coin-op that yeah. everyone was huddled around going, wow. Remember hard driving, for example? Yeah. I mean, that thing was the size of a baby elephant. Mm -hmm. That was huge, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. It had pneumatics and mechanics. and um, Well, we'll get into that, I guess, in a second with, with Sega as well, sure. with Space Harrier. Let's, let's maybe go back to Atari. So for me, um, Atari in that time were really magical and special. Now, I do know a little bit of background because I'm a big fan of the Atari 2600 as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also friends of Nolan Bushnell on Facebook. Ooh. <laughs> Showing <laughs> off now. I'm Claire. So basically, Atari was split into the coin-op division and the home division. And of course, from our points of view, um, like I said in the previous podcast, we both said the, the coin-op games were always the ultimate, weren't they? Yeah. The absolutely. ultimate experience, yeah. In the early days yeah. of Atari console gaming and other systems, it was a game, but it certainly wasn't the arcade experience, and it took some time actually for uh, home systems to equal, yeah, uh, you know, the the capability of an arcade system. So when you took your money down the arcade, it was a premium experience yeah. that you were getting at that time. It's a good way of putting it, actually. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about um, the Atari games. What, what what ones do you remember as being some of your favourites or most significant? So there were some curiosities of some very weird ones, as you've mentioned before. Mm -hmm. A lot of them had some quite bespoke controls. Yeah. Uh, so Marble Madness was a, uh, a, an energetic game. That was a weird game. The, the music, the, the whole feeling in that game was so surreal, wasn't it? It was a bit trippy, shall we say. I'm not sure quite where the core of that idea originated from. That was a trackball controller, wasn't trackball. it? Trackball, yeah. So that, that was weird. So that, iRobot which was a, a, quite a strange concept of a, a robot hopping around, colouring in a maze in 3D. That was a weird one, yeah. Um, uh, under the all-seeing eye yeah, that was right. gazing down on it. Also, the Star Wars games, of course. They were quite big, weren't they? Yeah. All three of them. You had Star Wars, which is one of the best um, wireframe kind of uh, vector games I've ever played, I think. Uh, Star Wars was the game yeah. for, for for a number of years, actually, it held a position uh, within the arcade as being probably one of the best games to play. It was so immersive at the time to have that first person in the cockpit experience. Yeah. It had absolutely monumental sound, and that was one of the things you get from an arcade. They didn't of course, a specific controller for that game, more or less. I mean, yeah. they used it, that trigger controller thing, in a few games. but Oh, yeah, a very, again, bespoke controller yeah. that was 
you know tied into the game but in an arcade the sound experience you can't underestimate that mm. uh, i mean it was absolutely full on all the uh, cabinets were competing with each other uh, they'd be cranked up extraordinarily loud <laughs> and so to be sitting in this cockpit because it yeah. was a, a sit down game playing Star Wars with the sound of TIE fighters screaming around you. And, and Wookiees, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the TIE fighters. <laughs> right, okay. Um, it, it was just such a thrill as a, yeah. a young kid to see that. I think the speakers were kind of, yeah, just behind your ears sort of thing, yeah. weren't they? If, if you can imagine that, behind you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And of course then there was Empire Strikes Back, which was the same technology. And then one of my favourites, Return of the Jedi, and they, they completely changed the whole format, didn't they? was no longer a sort of vector graphics based. Nope. This was what sprite-based gaming, uh, sideways, what do you call it, isometric yeah. scrolling game which was, in, I found impossible but you were you were a complete genius at I was pretty good if I say so myself yeah it was a beautiful game I loved the samples in that game mm -hmm. and also we had um, what other Atari games were there well actually on the on the subject of samples yeah that was a big thing that was a novelty so on the home system you wouldn't have the voice of the stars from in a game say Ooh, yeah talking uh, at you and I remember <laughs> I remember going back to Star Wars the uh -huh. moment where you're flying down the trench and Obi-Wan says, use the force, let go. Oh, yeah. And you let go of the controllers and crash the ship. It was a classic moment because somehow you thought you were being influenced by the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi and it was linking you into the game in a way that actually wasn't really happening. It was real, real immersion, wasn't it? And you it didn't was, get that yeah. at home. In fact, the first time I think I heard uh, speech was probably some karate game on uh, on the 64-bit. Yeah, maybe a... Not 64-bit, 16-bit a simple kind of sample, yeah, some simple samples that were low bit rate, mm -hmm. kind of a bit muddy. I mean, there was like Ghostbusters also on the Commodore 64. That kind of thing. Um, was it Mission Impossible? Yeah, that's right. Oh, uh, another visitor. Stay a while. Stay, stay forever. forever. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they weren't samples as in, you know, they were just like, they were just tech demos really, weren't they? It was just exactly. a bit of speech to show, ooh, we can do a bit of speech. Yeah. But yeah, you're right, the, the, whereas the coin ops had the, the technology. Mm -hmm to put in multiple samples. Um, Where the Exploding Fist was the game on the Commodore that had some kind of sound sampling on it. I oh, I didn't know that. It was, Where the Exploding Fist. There we go. Yeah, also I remember Paperboy, which mm -hmm. had handlebars like on a bicycle. Another example of an Atari coin-up where there was no expense spared, was there? I know. I mean, in, in the modern era, everything is done to a kind of uh, a formula. And when they construct these things... They're using component parts that are sitting on a factory shelf already. But you can imagine with Atari yeah. and the games that they did, and I'm going to mention one in a second that mm -hmm. was also quite bespoke, they put a lot of effort into designing a cab, and they must have cost a bomb. Yeah. Uh, and they were solid, but they would have these unique controllers. So like you say, Paperboy had a set of handlebars, so you were riding the bike. How did you jump on it? Was it pulling the handlebars? Yeah. So you'd have to pull up on the handlebars to do a jump. The other game, and this is, for me... This is the classic Atari coin-op game, is Battlezone. Ah, of course, yeah. Now we're going back as well, yeah. And so we're going all the way back. My, one of my earliest memories is being in, in uh, Giles Cafe in Melksham. <laughs> and for, it had a few arcade games in it. Battlezone was one of them, and I was absolutely mesmerised. On the bigger versions, you would stand up. It would have like a viewing port for you to look in mm -hmm. and play the game. I remember that, yeah. Uh, and also the controls were the two sticks that you would move in order to rotate the tank one way or the other with the buttons on the... And so, again, a lot of work had gone into that, a lot of thought had gone into designing mm. an experience 
around it. And it was also quite a wacky game because not only have you got other tanks to fight, there was a volcano in the background, there were flying tanks and a UFO. I mean, what a combination. <laughs> but it was a brilliant game, wasn't it? It was absolutely brilliant, yeah. And it's almost not quite VR, but the idea of looking through a portal, being immersed mm -hmm. in a 3D environment was a step in that direction. And this was like early 80s, I'm sure. Well, I, um, I seem to remember the American military took a, a yeah. version of that on, didn't they? Absolutely, yeah. And this has been the same with a lot of flight simulators as well, hasn't it? Uh, so what was the other game you're going to mention from Atari? It wasn't Gauntlet by any chance. Well, Gauntlet definitely yeah. was, a, was a, a brilliant game. Yeah, it was. That, which was multiplayer. Four-player. So it was 2D, I guess, yeah. Yeah, top-down top 2D. Top-down 2D, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. But yeah, the multiplayer element was the, the huge selling point. And I remember that machine when it first appeared in the arcade um, that we used to go to. Was It was always pretty full up most of the time. Yeah. They must have made an absolute fortune on it. Because oh, instead of one person playing at a game at that time, you had four. So they're, they're quadrupling the money that's being shoveled into the machine. Yeah. The only thing I remember about that is uh, I played Valkyrie most of the time, and Valkyrie <laughs> is about to die. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Valkyrie is about to die. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about um, the uniqueness, though. I, I do remember, I think, uh, Gauntlet and Paperboy were the same, the same um, technology. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you're right. That there's something about that era where money seemed to be no object at that time. Mm. If if you could imagine it, they would make it. I mean, take hard driving. That was a huge, like I said, the size of a baby elephant. That thing must have weighed literally a ton. Mm -hmm. um, then you had, and then Sega came along, of course, with games like uh, Outrun and Space Harrier. Yep. And those again were huge, immersive cockpits. Yep. Moving cockpits. Yeah, so, with mechanical hydraulic parts, yeah. So as you turned the steering wheel or pulled on the joystick, you actually lurched left, right. And funnily enough, that will lead into a conversation about the Conics multi-system that hopefully we're going to start next week, because that had yeah. a home chair experience. You know what, whenever I think of the Conics, I do think of Space Harrier from Sega. Yeah. That they, they saw that. Maybe they didn't, I'm speculating, but for me, in my mind, it's like the Conics people saw Space Harrier and went, Ooh, I wonder yeah. if we could consoleize something like that or make that available in the home with moving parts and specific controllers for specific games. Yeah. Um, which is something, I guess, now we're sort of crawling, creeping back into in the modern era. But I remember there was a period in maybe the 80s, 90s where, you know, you had your Super Nintendo, whatever. It was one controller for everything. If mm -hmm. it was a racing game, if it was a, a beat-em-up. And the arcades, again, the difference was every game had its unique controller. Yeah. Steering wheels for driving games, um, joysticks for helicopter games, trackballs for marble, you know, it goes light, on and on and Light on. guns for shooting games. Light guns, absolutely. Oh, yeah, the only other game I really have fond memories of was Indiana Jones, um, which was based on the movie loosely. Yeah. I think the importance of that was, um, it's one of the few games I can think of, uh, video, computer games, whatever you want to call it, that based on a movie and actually made a decent game out of it. I mean, GoldenEye is another one I can think of. I mean, this is a whole topic of conversation, I guess, for another time. But do you remember Indiana Jones? A weird 2.5D kind of uh, perspective. It was an interesting game. Um, I seem to remember it was based on the Temple of Doom. Lots mm. of mine carts and whipping people. Yeah. This was a... <laughs> A and a weird, obscure. weird perspective where you sort of went up and down ladders. It was kind of trying to be two D and three D at certain points. It was a weird, um, and you had some, some odd sound effects. Again, another surreal one from Atari. Mm -hmm. One of the few 
arcade games I can recall where it did have an ending as well. Oh, right, okay. Um, I don't think many Atari games did. Mm-hmm. They, basically, they basically get so hard that you just naturally have to die. Unless Flunk you were... out, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because I was talking to you the other day saying that I don't have a lot of nostalgia for Sega for some reason. Yet when I started to talk about favourite games, I realised they were Sega. Mm-hmm. So... What was it about Sega that was so different and so... Yeah, I can't find a nostalgia for them. I think Sega had a period of about five or ten years uh, and they were predominantly arcade-led, mm. uh, where they produced high-quality systems, incredibly co- colourful and rich gameplay that was a, of a quality other systems were unable to, to match. And it was the I think it was the scaling sprites was the unique thing, wasn't it? They oh. could make games like OutRun because they could move sprites 3D yes. at such a... Incredible speed. So that oh, was Power Drift. Yep, Power Drift. Uh, Space Harrier, of course. Of course. And that, that was a big one, Space Harrier. With the scrolling checkerboard floor and the scaling sprites was a great experience. And, and just, yeah. to, just to explain in detail, the chair, so when you move left, the chair would actually shift to the left yep. with the monitor on it, everything else. So moving around was an incredibly... I mean, your whole body moved with the game, didn't it? If you wanted that kind of experience outside anywhere else you would have to wait until the uh, not the arcade the, the fairground yeah. came to town when the fairground came to town you'll get thrown about for a little bit of money now you could choose to do it by going down the arcade putting money into a machine mm-hmm. strapping yourself in but you'd have sometimes have crowds of people watching you because it was such a unique experience and you'd feel the pressure to do quite well so if you flanked it quite quickly you know what that's another point that we haven't really mentioned um, before which is that concept of playing a video game with an audience around you, because you yeah. don't get that at home. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, you do now if you live stream your content so you can bring the, the viewers into your room, mm-hmm. as it were. But at the time, yeah, that you would have a live audience around you watching a game, especially if they were queuing up to play yeah. it themselves, trying to, trying to see if you were the man, you know? Yeah. And it's a bit like, I mean, to put it into perspective, playing pool, for example. Mm-hmm. If I play pool against somebody in an empty bar or empty room... It's a lot different to playing pool when a lot of people are waiting to play and you've got to win to stay on. And so it's that same thing with the coin ops, isn't it? That it's one thing playing a game by yourself, but when you're surrounded by loads of people, the pressure's on, isn't it? The nerves kicks in, which can help as well. It depends mm. on your, I guess, your talent and abilities and personality. But Exactly. Uh, I, I must admit, I can't say that particularly I was ever surrounded by lots of people watching my skills. I was never a master at any particular coin op, to be honest. Well, I thought you did quite well at Outrun uh, beating that. When I was drunk as well. When you were drunk at the time. So uh, plaudits, considering the fact that I couldn't even get halfway through whilst I was sober. The thing about that game was, it was a so it was a racing game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually, well, basically, if you don't crash, it's not that hard. Mm-hmm. But if you crash, that's it, it's game over. That's how hard that game was. Yeah. You literally could not crash your car once. But if you didn't, you could get through it. But yeah, yeah the time limit was pretty strict. It was a hard game at times. Um, an absolute classic, though. If you had not seen OutRun or played it, check it out on YouTube, of course. So we, we had a period. Mm-hmm. Atari, yeah. very in- innovative, interesting controllers and what have you. Brought an awful lot to the arcade. Then we had uh, the likes of Sega come in, mm. who I think were much better in the arcade than they were in, in yeah. the home uh, arena. That's perhaps another conversation. And even, even Nintendo as well, with, with games like Punch-Out, 
Mm-hmm. Um, there might have been a few others. I don't remember many Nintendo, but... But my feeling about the arcades, and this is where Atari kind of dwindled, mm. was that the arcades kind of devolved into a series of beat-em-ups yeah. and beat-em-up clones that were like the Mortal Kombats of this world, mm-hmm. where you had digitised characters fighting, or um, Virtual Fighter... Yeah. And things like that, and uh, Street Fighter. Of course, Street Fighter 2, yeah. Yeah, and Street Fighter 2 in the arcades. And I felt the shine on innovation got canned, and I guess the developers of these suddenly realised having a cabinet with joystick and a couple of buttons was probably far easier and cheaper to manufacture than something with a, a set of handlebars. I mean, yeah. think about something like that when it goes wrong and the maintenance around it and the cost associated with it. Oh, and think about the hydraulics in uh, something like Space Harrier yeah. or Outrun. I mean... It must have cost a bit. They must have cost at least double, maybe triple, I'm guessing. But, mm. yeah, it was a huge difference, wasn't it, from a, a monitor with a couple of circuit boards in, kind of, kind of like what I mentioned with the Neo Geo approach to things. Yeah. And Nintendo, to some extent, with their Play 10 system. So one cabinet with a standard CRT, 17-inch, I think, um, and a few games that could be played on it. Yeah. Two specifically made coin ops with hydraulics and special controllers. They take up floor space, they yeah. take up power. Oh, so, yes, and I can imagine the power. Probably high maintenance as well. So, And one thing we wanted to sort of segue into is horror games from this mm-hmm. because we've come up with something, a couple of things, haven't we, where we realised that, I mean, back in the, in, the, in the days of the arcade, you had a lot of platforms, you had shoot-em-ups, you had racing games, you name it, you pretty much had it. Except for horror. Now, horror seems to be a genre of computer slash video game mm-hmm. that could never really have worked in an arcade environment. And it's no. something where the home systems shone and continue to shine. You can never be frightened in a place that's packed full of people. No. Um, like uh, an arcade with all the shining lights and uh, Everything that kind of pulls you out of that uh, immersion yeah. that you need for a horror game. It's just never going to happen there. That's true. <laughs> it is. So from home computing experience, there was a, a, an opportunity to be had within the horror genre to well, exploit that. Yeah, That's absolutely right. However, I think we need to break it down into three parts because I've kind of thought about this quite a lot over the last couple of weeks and I've been playing a lot of horror games as well. I think there's kind of there was like three sort of phases, you might say. Because what happened was, even with the coin-ops as well, actually, you did get games um, like the Aliens game, for example, which is a sideways-scrolling shooter. And then at home on the 8-bit, mostly, and sort of going into 16-bit era, um, there were games like Alien versus Predator and Aliens that were sort of in a splatter house, also at the arcade. Now, they were sort of horror environments, but they weren't true horror, were they? No, they didn't scare you, frankly. They were... No action of assault my first horror experience mm-hmm. on 8-bit that i remember was a commodore 64 funnily enough alien aliens title why um, do you think that was scary then so the game itself as a concept was to take a number of people from the aliens movie through a base a series of rooms this so is the marines isn't it from marines the movie. and ripley yeah and you're taking them from room to room and they may or may not encounter an alien or a face hugger and so the 8-bit uh, systems graphically were not rich, just a handful of colours on screen, and uh, had a fantastic SID chip uh, on the Commodore 64 where of I played course. this game. So <laughs> opportunity for sound. And they exploited that quite well in terms of when you encountered a room where there was an enemy in it, 
the alarm would be raised and it would uh, go up and up and the rate and the pulse of the alarm would go up and it would uh, work you up into a frenzy until you panicked and when you had a number of characters in different rooms and all these alarms going off it kind of freaked you out frankly graphically it didn't hook you in so much but it was just a first taste as yeah. it were of potential horror on computing I, I do vaguely remember that game, and you're right. I mean, it, it didn't start off scary, but once you had, yeah, various alarms going off, and you were in, in charge of all the characters in real time, weren't you? So That's there's right. a lot of multi, multitasking and jumping around, mm -hmm. I guess. You're right. And they used, uh, presumably as best they could, the, the audio. That's right, yeah. yeah. And I think Commodore 64 of any 8-bit system had the, the most opportunity oh. to do well there. We, we worship the SID chip. Absolutely, on yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 I haven't played it, but I'm imagining the same game on the Spectrum wouldn't cut it. <laughs> yeah, all respect to the Spectrum. I love the Spectrum for many things. but S Sound I, was not its strong no, point, was it? sound was not its strong point. And at that, at, that, at that time as well, most of the other horror-ish games weren't really that scary. That was probably one of the first. And I think the reason why was your imagination, because it was sort of a 3D perspective, mm -hmm. but the aliens would be coming either from the left or right outside of the TV almost. You're yes. waiting for them to come in to your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And it was that fear created by your imagination, I think, actually worked in that game. Yeah. Compared to most of the other uh, games at that time that were, even the Aliens games, were sideways scrollers, basically, uh, platform games. So you could see everything. There was no lighting effects. It wasn't scary. Funny, I mean, that's a fundamental of horror. It's not the thing you can see. It's yeah. the thing you can't. And you're prompted by the sound cue you know, to say there's danger there. And actually what you'd have to do is swing from one side of the room to the other in order to see what was there all to escape. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think from that, so that was kind of phase one in a sense. And mm. then phase two, I think really things like the PS1 uh, iterate quite well with games like Res the first Resident Evil and Silent Hill as well. Yeah. Um, do you uh, remember the first Resident Evil? Did you play it? I did. I owned the first Resident Evil. Mm. And I would say, actually, this is where the hardware enabled yeah. us to do things we couldn't do before. Starting to creep in now. The hardware starting to get to that level where lighting, for example, could come into play. Yeah. And uh, the hardware would have a CD-ROM so you could stream pre-rendered footage, cutscenes mm -hmm. from the CD-ROM. And I think production levels, actually, in terms of game development, had gone right up. So you'd have scores of music starting to come in yeah. that were, you know, uh, movie quality, starting to get movie quality at that time. And I remember Resident Evil was the first game that I found as a, a genuine horror. Yeah. Now, people will have all their own experiences. Obviously, we can only talk about our own subjective experiences. Mm, of course, yeah. But for me, that was the first time where I felt that we were just starting to touch the horror nerve. And the technology was enabling us to do that. I think horror needs a certain amount of cinematic qualities yeah. in order to make it work. Um, and better technology gave us better opportunities from that. And whereas we worship 8-bit in the past, horror didn't lend itself very well on that platform. I don't think, to be honest, it really worked that well on 16-bit either. I think 16-bit was on that cusp of the, the 2D games were phenomenally good mm -hmm. and looked fantastic. The 3D games were kind of still a little bit experimental. Yeah, you had games like Star Collider 2 and so forth, mm -hmm. where the extra processing power could create games in that genre. But there wasn't much horror, I don't remember, on the 16-bit systems. No. And then you had, yeah, as I said, the PS1. And then that kind of leads into things like the Atari Jaguar as well, yeah. past the PS1, where and the PS2, of course, 
where the Resident Evil games continue to to get better and better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still going today, isn't it, Resident Evil? There's something interesting though. Just before uh, you move on, that Resident Evil was a very successful franchise. 1996, the first game came out. I was going to say that actually. Twen- twen- <laughs> I thought I beat you to it. 22 years ago, it was the year I met my wife, which was wow. Yeah. A long time ago now. What I was going to say about it was until recently, that was always a third-person mm-hmm. horror game, and now they switched to first-person. So obviously going into the first-person gives the game a lot more immersion, which I think is a key factor in horror games, isn't it? Just to put that into perspective, um, I've been playing and watching some horror playthroughs in the last couple of weeks, and I've noticed when I'm playing a horror game, I mean, they can be incredibly frightening. Yeah. But if I watch the same game on a Let's Play, as a YouTube series, mm-hmm. it's not frightening at all. And it's not because I know what's coming up. It could be parts of the game I haven't even seen yet. It's just that I'm not immersed. Yeah. Resident Evil went to first person, so it could therefore also go into virtual reality and be as immersive as possible. Is that kind of on the lines? Of- yeah, I mean, it's all about suspension of, uh, of disbelief. You yeah. play a game, a horror game, because you want to be frightened effectively in the same way you, you watch a horror movie you know it's a horror movie and you want to be frightened by it so um i'm presuming that's why most people play well, a horror game but i can't imagine people thinking i'm gonna get a horror game because i don't want it to be frightened because i find it challenging or something that is true to an extent i'm not disagreeing with you um but i do play quite a few horror games not all not some of the scarier ones but mm-hmm. i play some that are fairly frightening and i do sometimes question if i'm enjoying being frightened or not in some ways i don't like being frightened but what i do like are the the environments of horror so maybe in my case it's more that i like the darker side of life um things that are psychologically maybe challenging Mm -hmm. different um confusing uh cyberpunk-esque in some ways so in the last couple of weeks i think i mentioned to you when we were chatting um that i've been playing fear a lot which is a First person PC, I think it's mostly PC or only PC. Well, so anyway, I'm playing it on PC. It's a 2007 first person shooter. It's kind of a horror game, and then in many ways, it's kind of not. It's a weird mix, but it is a classic PC game. That I highly recommend uh, to everybody to play if you're really into games with um, really good artificial intelligence in a first person game. Um, now, the horror does creep me out a lot and it has put me off playing the game but even though I don't like the horror parts of it I kind of still enjoy playing it but there are times when the game frustrates me I'm angry at the game or I'm scared and I do think to myself why on earth am I going through this experience Mm -hmm. I think to answer what you were mentioning before it's not just the fear factor maybe it's the fact that you want to get overcome your fears so it's not so much i like being scared in my case it's that i enjoy saying you know what this is frightening to me but i'm going to find a way past it i'm going to overcome my fears i I think it's horses for courses different people probably do it for different reasons and i know that certainly when i throw myself into a horror game the the thing i'm trying to get out of it is i want to suspend my disbelief Mm -hmm. as i said i want to put myself in a situation that i would never ever expect myself to be in Hopefully not. Uh, yes, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> and for that moment, whilst I'm playing the game, think, what would I do and would I live or would I die? It's mm-hmm. as, as simple as that. That's a really good point. And I think that's why, I mean, this is sort of segueing into survival horrors. Mm-hmm. 
um, which is a kind of an, there's so many sub-genres of, of horror games, but yeah. one I do like is survival horror. Um, and that's because it tends to be, because it's focused on survival, it's less about jump scaring you and being, uh, you know, a thousand ways we can make you feel scared. Mm-hmm. It's actually about surviving a pretty horrific situation that's horrific, maybe, but mm-hmm. not it's not jump scare horror. Yeah. And those kind of games I love. One I'd like to mention is The Forest. Have you played The Forest? I've not played The Forest. I have heard good things about it, though. It's an excellent game. Um, it's classed as a horror survival. There are horror elements to it. It, yeah, it might make me jump occasionally, but... As someone who finds games like uh, Silent Hill, for example, um, a little bit too much at times, or Amnesia Mm -hmm. is a classic modern uh, horror game from the guys who made Penumbra. Uh, Sorry, Penumbra. Um, So the reason I'm saying this is I I find it confusing because on the one hand, there are horror games that I can't play and absolutely hate. Yet, there are other horror games I absolutely love. So I can't say I like or dislike horror games. I find it very confusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, The Forest is more about survival in, again, her- horrific circumstances. But, uh, but survival horror, the pinnacle mm. of survival ho- horror for me, yeah. funnily enough, going back to yet another Alien game, Alien Isolation was a fantastic game out on the PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, mm-hmm. uh, other platforms, PC, yeah. PC etc., now, this was a game that was brilliant, and the reason, to my mind, it was brilliant was that uh, it puts you into that uh, position of what would I do in this mm-hmm. scenario. And the reason it works so well is that you don't have any superpowers. No. You have your wits, cunning, the ability to craft a few items uh, in order to uh, help you get through yep. an immense labyrinth of a space station that is infested with androids, violent human thugs. Mm-hmm and a single very intelligent alien. I mean, that game is... Oh, I, I'm with you on this. It's very hard to summarise this game. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's, it's beautifully looking. It really is. And unlike most horror games, although there are quite a few now going in this direction, it's not about running around shooting things and killing things. It's about surviving. In fact, in that game specifically, you get a gun... Um, but it's best not to use it unless you really have to because getting a gun and firing it means you're going to get the alien awoken to where you are. So I've I've been playing it recently, and if you sneak around and play that game very calmly, which I think is the key to it, it's a beautiful um, it's a beautiful atmospheric game that is creepy, mm-hmm. um, but it's not that horror in the traditional sense of throwing in lots of jump scares and you know the kind of tacky. Well, I say tacky, but. Tried and tested, I suppose, yes. ways of scaring people. I notice when I'm playing it, it's more my imagination yeah. of, is it in there? Is it, if I go in Yet this... again, it's not the thing you can see, it's the thing you can't see. Yeah, absolutely. Any other modern PC? Well, I, I want to backtrack to Resident Evil 7, which I, mm. I hinted was uh, available in VR. So on PlayStation VR, I have this game. And I would say this takes horror to another level. Because VR obviously takes you to a huge level of immersion. And the PlayStation VR system is very good. I've uh, heard, yes. Frame, weight, frame rate, even, not frame weight. <laughs> frame rate, <laughs> on a slow system, it's a frame weight. Um, so frame rate's good. Uh, it's very smooth graphically. I don't think it's the highest resolution system out there, but it works well for me. And I would say some interesting things about this game. So you start off, and I'm not going to give away any spoilers in this, but mm-hmm. to, to say you start off and uh, you get out of a car 
which is a great experience in VR in its own right. But you get to a house. And whereas if I was watching this on a TV screen, I would have probably gotten through into the property in about five minutes and not given a damn about the way it looked. I found myself outside that property, studying it, looking at the detail. And there's some detail of things like, that fence is interesting. And look, all those spikes are pointing inwards, not outwards. They're trying to keep people in, not trying to keep people out. (laughs) And the, the whole journey about working your way through into the house was so rich and immersive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what would have been five minutes was half an hour. Wow. And once you're in the game, without giving any spoilers away, there are a couple of moments that are not just jump scare. Yeah. Which are so brilliant mm-hmm. in terms of the way that you, you're you played, effectively. There's some misdirection that happens right. in, in one of the scenes that I had to do a double take. Because I can't remember being led, but I must have been led to do one thing, which led to me missing something else happening that was very significant. So it's got the intelligence of a magician. Yeah, Yeah. it feels very much like that. And you don't feel in control at all. So not only are you fully immersed, but the the work they've done around the the game, not just graphically, but in terms of the intelligence of that misdirection is absolutely phenomenal. And I would say... I'm probably about a tenth of the way through that game, and I'm too scared to carry on playing it, <laughs> frankly. It's been sitting on the shelf, you know, and I know I've got to complete it one day when I've grown up and I'm a big, brave dog, but not right now. <laughs> it's a funny one, this, isn't it? Because, I mean, fear, I'm going back to fear again very quickly, but that game, when I first got it many, many years ago, I did find it a bit too scary. Mm-hmm. However... I have gone back to it recently, and I can play it now. And I'm really glad, because I, I, I love the um, mechanics of that game. Other games, uh, like Doom 3, I went back to again a few years back, having started it many years ago, and stopped. And both times, I got to a point where I could not move forward. And you might think, oh my god, what a wimp. Oh no, it's not. can't be that bad, it's just a video game. When you're immersed in a game, even without virtual reality, as long as it's, I think, a first-person game, a game like Doom, it's, it's horrible. Well, funny, Doom itself is one we've not mentioned today. Now, oh, the, the classic, yeah, the yeah. original Doom. Sorry, I was talking about Doom 3. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know. So Doom Doom on the PC yeah. was, I think, the first time I saw a, uh, an FPS. That was a scary game, but not... No, it, yeah, it had an atmosphere, yeah. but not scary. However, Doom 3, you're convinced there's something unholy about this I game, I think it's you? actually evil. I really do. I mean, my theory is that most horror games are good people imagining bad things and making them happen, like in Resident Evil. Doom, there are bits where I'm like, okay, this is evil. Mm. The whole game is evil. I think you had the same thing about the Exorcist movie. Uh, but I know why, because I remember reading that a lot of the members of the cast either died or had terminal illnesses during the filming. I find myself saying I'm not... A, my least favourite genre of film is horror, yet my favourite films are technically in the horror genre, mm-hmm. which is The Exorcist and The Shining. Um, Whereas mine is Herbie Goes Bananas. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, going back to the, yeah, going back to horror and video games. Uh, So we've covered most of the main ones, I think. Um, I mean, the conclusion we we could draw uh, from the conversation is effectively technology is actually enabling horror in ways that we couldn't experience at all with 8-bit. So much as we have retro nostalgia to the max on this podcast, you know, hands down, new systems deliver a much more frightening experience, don't they? Yes, I agree. And I think going back to my theory, we had three phases and what surprised me or I didn't expect was VR is, I think, a fourth phase. Mm. 
like you said, the immersion in it in something like Resident Evil Seven is it's just an, another layer of, of of technological advancement that's creating an even more I think they're horror missing, experience. Definitely missing a trick with VR. They need to do a horror game with tentacles because there are so many cables. <laughs> it would be easy to juxtapose the two and think you're actually being really attacked. Just for the record, I have played a horror game on VR on your Oculus. Do you remember? I do. Yeah. And that was fairly low resolution, but it doesn't make a difference. That experience was amazing and I remember there was a bit you were laughing at me where I just said I don't want to go there I'm not going in there I don't want to move I don't want to press W whatever to move forward anymore I do not want to be here it's I can't it's horrible yeah it is really hard if you have an experience especially VR horror to explain how scary it is but it's if you haven't tried it because it's yeah it's horrible so I think we're pretty much wrapping up now is there anything else i mean what we're going to be talking about so well i guess um our quick oh um, what are you playing right now bi-weekly what are you up to uh now peace what are you up to now mark <laughs> uh well i've mentioned i've been playing fear uh but i've also been playing um so i've been six so i've been playing quite a lot of stuff recently um and i've been playing far cry 3 i know it's a bit of an oldie but i've got loads of games that i just don't get time to play sometimes uh, which is a little bit old by today's standards, but it's a first-person sort of shooter, but an open-world RPG to an extent. Imagine Skyrim with guns, kind of, but it's not fantasy at all. It's you a take a bullet to the knee, not an arrow to the <laughs> knee, right? Yep. <laughs> also been playing for a bit of fun at Just Cause 3. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this one. This is a third-person game, actually. Uh, it's a bit like Far Cry on steroids. It's just about creative ways of killing blowing up destroying just about everything but the game's designed for that it's like james bond on steroids um an amazing fun experience you know you know what it's been a while since i just played a game for fun mm -hmm. i do that a lot on my older games on the commodore for example i play them for arcadey fun but it's very around the pc i don't play a serious game okay and finally um i really want to recommend this one subnautica Mm. which is a survival game, um, the difference being it's mostly underwater, so you've got all the perils of uh, things like breathing oxygen, or not, if you're unlucky. <laughs> or, or H2O, if yeah, you're unlucky. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so that's pretty much it. What about you, Dan? Um, anything besides Destiny? Well, just a, a quick comment on Subnautica. I understand they sacked a sound engineer for making racist comments on Twitter recently. So Did they really? Yeah, they're in the press for that. Um, but myself, uh, two things very quickly. One, I grabbed uh, an old first-person shooter for the PlayStation 4 for a fiver from a, uh, okay. a game shop pre-owned thing called Evolve. All right. Which is great fun. Hunters versus a monster. It's a multiplayer game. The monster evolves. The hunters use their skills in order to try and trap the beast. Lots of fun for five quid. I is that go a wrong. horror game or not so much? Not, not really. Not really. No, no. But a bit of an adult game by the sound FPS, of it. very adult. Yeah, don't yeah. play it in front of the kids. There's lots of rude words in that. But uh, from Retro World, uh, I fired up my Amiga 500 and dug out Captain Blood, which was... One of those weird games without, you know, comparable format. Yeah, I don't know where to put it. I, I can't even begin to talk about that game. It's just weird in every sense of the word. People who owned it will look back and think, wow, yeah, I remember. That was a great game. It was also very unique in the way that you had to uh, pilot a... It was actually a computer programmer, I believe, had been sucked into a game, into a world. I didn't realise that. And then had, through an accident of hyperspace... 
cloned himself several hundred times and you join the game towards the end when he's looking for the last five clones of himself because each clone is draining part of his life force and the joy of it, it's a weird game. You have to launch a flying fish down to a planet, <laughs> uh, navigate a canyon and find an alien on the planet, and then use a uh, an icon-based language in order to interrogate that alien life form. <sighs> bizarre. It, it is bizarre, but strangely addictive. Yeah. And you communicate with them uh, in order to get coordinates of these clones or find other people, and you end up having to do things for aliens in order to achieve that. Um, I do remember how Jean-Michel Jean... Is soundtrack it? or intro music or something like I that. I believe it was a, a remix of Ethnicolor from Zuluk. So great on the Commodore Amiga. Yeah. The Commodore 64 version was absolutely dire. Well, that's, I mean, this is another conversation for another time. As much as uh, you and I love the Commodore 64, there was a point where we realized rather than the 16 bits releasing better versions of an 8 bit game, mm -hmm. the 8 bits were trying to compete with the 16-bit games and they couldn't they were struggling <laughs> certainly on this game it could not compete <laughs> frankly so yeah that's what i've been up to game wise uh, recently and i guess we're going to wrap up the podcast now with a promise that actually we are going to deliver something about conics multi-system in two weeks time i would say it's going to be in the next podcast if it's not it's definitely going to be the one after okay right well it's goodbye from me and goodbye from retro Markey. thanks for listening 